Is he dead? I don't know. Look at him. You can decide for yourself. No, he's just sleepy. Here. He he just looks terrifying. Okay. <laughs> are we recording? Yeah, we are. Hi, we're back. Hi, we're back. We took last week off. Last week, we took off for a number of reasons. Um, One of them being, we were just very busy last week. Like, the day that we normally record, we both had stuff going on. I had a concert I had to do. Yeah. You have rehearsals, like, every day. Yeah, my the school's play is coming up. Um, so we were just, I've been busy with that. (laughs) Yeah, so, we're finally back. But we also wanted to do something special for Halloween. Yeah, so. By the time this comes out, it'll be past Halloween. Well, I plan on releasing this one on Halloween itself. Oh, okay, so this will be on Halloween. And then the second. Halloween. (laughs) And then the second episode will come out on our regular day, Friday. So you get. Like a two-in-one two. deal. Yeah. And we wanted to do something that would be cool enough to be put into two parts, but also that would be like kind of Halloween-related, although honestly all the stuff we cover is Halloween-related. Halloween-related. But in honor of American Horror Story Apocalypse Which I released, haven't seen yet. Neither have I. <laughs> I don't have cable. Um, I don't either. Hey! Hey! So don't spoil it for us. Please. Please. Please don't. Please. Um, so we thought we would cover the true stories behind the first six seasons of American Horror Story. So this is going to be real fun. Um, and we're not necessarily going to go into everything that... American Horror Story was based upon because there's so much that they really add into the show. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> there's so much. Um, so we're going to make honorable mentions and then we're probably just going to dwell into one or two stories per season. Yeah. And I mean, some of them we've even already talked about. Yeah. I've talked about a lot of them actually already, not on purpose. Yeah, because you did Mary Laveau last episode. Yeah. And she was a major player in season three, okay. which you're going to talk about I am today. Talk about so three. the order of today is that Arya talks about Murder House, Yay. I talk about Asylum, and then she talks about um, Coven. Excuse me, Discord. And then. <laughs> and then next episode. Alex is going to start us off and talk about, wait, Forrest, not Freak Show. Coven. No, Coven's three. You're doing Coven. I'm doing Coven. Yeah, Freak Show. Yeah, it is Freak Show. You get Freak Show. I get Freak Show. Yeah. You get Freak Show, you, and then I get Freak Show, you get Hotel, and then I get Roanoke. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. We got it. That took us a while. There's there, there's a lot of things to remember. There's just there's a lot in general. So why don't we kick things off? Get things started. Um, 
by talking about the first season, Murder House. Now, one of the things I do love about this show is just how it kind of, gosh, (laughs) it kind of started this whole new genre of its own of horror TV shows, because that wasn't really a thing. Yeah, because I mean, at least here in America, there were things like Twilight Zone and stuff like that, but that was like in the 50s. Yeah. And even then, it wasn't really scary. It was more about like making you reflect and think upon life. So, this was like a first. And also, a fun fact that I learned that I didn't know is they film all of American Horror Story on actual film. So, it's really cool how they can manipulate the film and give it. The kind of vibe it has. Like, it's shot very well and very unique. All the zoom-ins in season one, though. Zoom. (laughs) Zoom. (laughs) So, for those of you who don't remember Murder House... Oh, which, by the way, we are going to... Should we put, like, a little timestamp sort of thing for people if they haven't seen, like, one of the seasons in the middle? If they're listening to this... They're going to get spoiled okay. no matter what timestamp they go to. True. Alrighty. So, I mean, we're not really... I mean, come on. Are we spoiling anything? So, season one, I I guess we'll give like a brief synopsis and not reveal the endings, because the endings are always the most interesting part, unless... That is a big cup. Sorry. Unless you have... I know. Um, unless you have like... A fact that has to do with the ending. We'll try to leave the endings ambiguous. I don't think I do. Aside I from do Asylum. Either. But that's because Asylum kind of yeah. ties into what's going on in the real world during that time of yeah. institutions anyway. so mm-hmm. I don't really think any of mine spoil anything too much. So, Murder House... The Harmon family moves into this murder house in LA after Ben Harmon cheats on his wife, Vivian. I hate his character. He's so Um, gross looking. He is. He kind of just stands there with his mouth open. (laughs) So once they move into this house that they don't realize is the murder house, weird stuff starts happening. Like random people keep popping up in their house and they're like, how the heck did you get in my house? Um... Violet meets one of Ben's patients. His name is Tate, played by the beautiful Evan Peters. I love you, Evan Peters. (laughs) (laughs) I do. And basically, they have this house full of spirits, and various spirits of the house are actually based off of real characters or were based off of, loosely based off of real things so the ones that i'm i'm only going to talk about two of the characters well one event and then one character and so the first one i'm like there's obvious parallels you can draw between any of them but these were the two i thought were the most interesting and i didn't like i could have talked about the school shooting that it was based off of, but I felt like that's kind of insensitive right now. Oof. So we're not going to talk about that. If you want to look it up, I mean, you can, but it's just a hard topic. To Sorry, I'm about. just reorganizing myself. 
So, if you hear we're going to talk about Richard Speck. So, Richard Speck, here, I'll describe a little bit about what he did. And you can tell me what you think he's... Hello! What characters you think are based off of him. Look, excuse my dogs. What are you barking at? Richard Speck is a murderer. <laughs> Which doesn't really narrow down character. <laughs> no. In Murder House. Um, so in 1966... Richard Speck committed one of the most horrifying mass murders in American history when he brutalized and killed eight students of a certain occupation living on Chicago's south side. What do you think he did? Kill nurse students? Yeah, so... I, in, I don't know why I said that so excited. <laughs> yeah, so in the second episode, there's these two nurses that are trapped in the house that were killed very brutally and so the dude that murdered them yeah he was real which is terrifying but he was real so richard speck captured the nation's attention during the summer of 1966 after murdering eight female students who lived together on chicago's south side before then he had been responsible for other acts of violence against his family and others but had a knack for escaping the police after his killing spree in 1966, a manhunt ensued, and he was captured two days later. He spent the rest of his life in prison until he died of a heart attack in 1991 at age 49. Wait, was he a serial killer or a spree killer? Um, that's the thing where it gets kind of muddy, because I think he's more of a spree killer, because, like, I don't know, like... Because he killed a lot of people, but, like... Serial killers kill a lot of people, but they kill them over a longer amount of time. Yeah, it was, like, really fast. So that's why I think it's more of a spree. spree. So we're just going to mostly talk about the crimes. Because that's what's an American Horror Story, not his backstory and life. And you can easily look up all his backstory if you really want to know how his childhood was probably Um, horrific so for a short time this dude was a carpenter but soon he was in trouble again 65 year old Virgil Harris was viciously raped and robbed in her own home on April 2nd in 1966 and on April 13th, a barmaid in his local tavern, Mary Kay Pierce, was brutally beaten to death. He managed to deflect the police questioning and escaped once again, but the police discovered some of Harris's personal effects in his vacant home hotel room. I mean, vacant hotel room that conclusively tied him to her attack. Speck found work on a ship and began to seem, and it began to seem like bodies were turning up wherever Speck had been. Indiana authorities wanted to interview Speck regarding the murder of three girls who had vanished on July 2nd, 1966, and whose bodies were never found. Michigan authorities also wanted to question him about his whereabouts during the murder of four other females aged between 7 and 60, which 7, he murdered a 7-year-old, and his ship had been 
in the vicinity of, at the time. Speck, however, seemed to have a knack for making a quick escape and kept the police forces guessing. These attacks, however, paled into insignificance on Saturday, July 13th in 1966, when Speck arrived on the doorstep of a townhouse in South Chicago, which served as a communal home for a group of eight young students nursing from nearby South Chicago Community Hospital. So these, um, in Murder House, it's only two girls, mm -hmm. like two students that get killed, because um, the rest of them had gone out. But in real life, they were all there. So when 23-year-old, oh, I'm going to butcher this person's name. I'm so sorry. Corazon Amara opened the front door to Speck's knock. He forced his way in at gunpoint. Speck then rounded the nurses up and ordered them to empty their purses before tying them all up. He proceeded to brutalize them in the most horrific fashion over the following hours. Those who had been fortunate enough to be out of time of his out at the time of his arrival found themselves also subjected to brutal attacks when they returned home later that evening. A total of eight women between ages 19 and 24 were systematically bound, robbed, beaten, strangled, and stabbed during Speck's frenzy. According to the New York Times, at least one victim was raped. The body count was so high that he failed to notice that Amuro, who had opened the door for him upon his arrival, had managed to hide herself in, under one of the beds. When he left hours later, taking the money he had stolen, she cowered in her hiding place, terrified for hours, before finally summoning up the courage to seek help. She climbed out on, on a window ledge and screamed for help, at which point concerned neighbors summoned the police. So that's how he got arrested. So... You can, I guess, call him a serial killer since he did, like, have a range of murders. However, none of them are really talked about as much as these ones, which is awful for the victims, obviously. Yeah. But I feel like this night was his, what made him infamous. And in the show, he, like, only has the two, and he specifically is, like oh, I'm going to drown you, and I'm going to stab you, and then people try to recreate his murders. I don't think anyone's actually tried to recreate his murders. I sure I hope. hope not. And he did have, um, I think he had a really bad relationship with nurses in general. So it was like one of those things where he was like, That was in the show, but in real life, he didn't really have anything. It was just kind of a, hey, this is a house with eight girls in it. I can kill them all in one night. So he doesn't have like a deeper meaning, at least from what I could find. So that is the story really quick of Richard Speck and his murders. Wasn't that fun. <laughs> Always a good time. Oh, but wait. We're going to go to another murder. Because it's Murder House. And there's a lot of murders. There's a lot. So I'm going to be talking about a woman. Her name is Elizabeth Short. Do you know who this woman is? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and say it. It's the Black Dahlia. Yeah, so in America Also tied to the Cecil Hotel. 
Okay. Which is... I know, it, it's tied to a lot. Yeah. So, who? Um, so, Dahlia, she showed up for a little bit. In the show, she was looking... She went to Charles Montgomery for an operation. And I believe in the show, he did it wrong. It was an implied to be an abortion that got botched, I think. And then... They were like, oh, crap, what are we going to do with the body? Well, darn. And so, <laughs> well, darn. Um, and so I think then they cut it up and made it look like it was a horrific murder. Yeah. To, like, cover the fact that it was a botched, botched abortion. Portion. So, but Elizabeth Short was real, and the way that she was murdered was depicted. However, it was not a botched abortion sadly um so she was found murdered in Lamert Park in the neighborhood of Los Angeles California so hers was actually in the setting of the murder house which is Los Angeles um so her corpse was mutilated and severed at the waist um, I've seen pictures of it and it's just like, I didn't mean to look at pictures of it, but I was reading an article one day, and they put pictures in the article about warning anyone, and I was like, oh, that's a dead body. Yeah, it's... Uncomfy. It's a lot. It's graphic. Um, she only was 22 when she died. So, oh, God, she would have been our peer. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we were in a the little, 40s, yeah. she would have been our peer. Mm-hmm. So she was a native of Boston. Um, she spent her early life in Massachusetts and Florida before relocating to California, where her father lived. It is commonly held that Short was an aspiring actress, though she had no known acting careers or jobs during her time in Los Angeles. She would acquire the nickname of the Black Dahlia um, after an owner of a drugstore in Long Beach, California, told reporters that the male customers had that name for her. So, male customers. Um, Quote, unquote. Yeah. So, as newspapers of the period often nicknamed particularly lurid crimes, the term may have originated from a film mystery, murder mystery, The Blue Dahlia, released in April 1946. After the discovery of of her body on January 15th, 1947, the Los Angeles Police Department began an extensive investigation that produced over 150 suspects, but, leaded, but yielded, yielded no arrest. So her murder is currently still unsolved. No one knows who the heck did this to her. Murders that go unsolved for so long bug me so much. Like, it just... Ugh, I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. It's just... And the thing is, is... Now we don't have to worry about it because obviously this happened back in 1946. I mean, 47. So this person is dead. Yeah, and it seemed like she was the one off killing because there weren't any other victims found like her. Mm-mm. So there's a lot, and it's. Her murder is frequently cited as one of the most famous unsolved murders in American history, as well as one of the oldest unsolved cases in the Los Angeles County. It has likewise been credited by historians as one of the first major crimes in post-World War II America to capture national attention. 
So, prior to her murder, um, she returned home in Los Angeles after a brief trip to San Diego with Robert, um, they called him Red. Was he a rad head? (laughs) No, I don't know. Um, Mulney, there's not much about him. A 25-year-old married salesman she had been dating. Mulney stated he dropped short off at the Biltmore Hotel, A, located 506 South Grand Avenue in downtown Los Angeles, and that short was to meet her sister, who was visiting from Boston that afternoon. By some accounts, the staff of the Biltmore recalled having seen Short using the lobby telephone. Shortly after, she was allegedly seen by patrons of the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge. Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge. That's too long of a name. Um, Mm -hmm. At 754 South Olive Street, approximately half a mile away from the Biltmore Hotel. So that's really all we know before her murder. Like, not even who was with her, like, where she was going. So... She was found naked in two pieces um, in a yard. So it would, there was a lot. I think some of the most interesting details were that her body was completely severed at the waist and drained entirely of blood, leaving her skin a pale white. And medical examiners determined that she had been dead for around 10 hours prior to the discovery, leaving her time of death either sometime during the evening of January 14th or the early morning hours of January 15th. The body was obvious, had obviously been washed by the killer. Short's face had been slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears, creating an effect known as yeah, Gasco smile. She had several cuts on her thighs and breasts were entire portions of flesh had been sliced away. The lower half of her body was positioned a foot away from her, the upper and her intestines had been tucked neatly, neatly beneath her buttocks. The corpse had been posed with her hands over her head, her elbows bent at right angles, and her legs spread apart. Mm. Yep. So, that's all the detail I care to go into. I mean... The autopsy doesn't really say much. Um, it just pretty much says what was there. Um, however, they they suspect that she might have been raped, but there was nothing found, and so they can't like go with that claim after all. Yeah, because DNA wasn't really... Well, no, there was no sperm found. Oh. There was none. So, Mm. if it happened, then... then. So, that's what happened to Dahlia. Um, So, people still are trying to figure out who this killer is. In fact, in 2014, a retired homicide detective, Steve Hodel... Homicide? Yes. It's homicide. I am so sorry. <laughs> homicide. Homicide. The homicidal agenda. Anyway, um, a retired homicide detective, Steve Hodel, produced evidence 
that his own father was the killer, which is very interesting. I think BuzzFeed talked about it in their like unsolved series. Anyway, I'm so behind on that. That's um, Murder House in a nutshell, with some other real killings that made great appearances. Want to talk about? Asylum. Yeah, let's talk about Asylum, which arguably is the most confusing of all of the American Horror Story. I remember my first time watching it, I was just so confused the whole time. I was sitting there like, what? I'm sorry. What? (laughs) Yeah, it's like one of those seasons that you have to... Also, you can eat your mac and cheese now. I'm not going to shame you for it. But, like, it's it's one of those seasons where, like, when I first watched it, I didn't like it. But now I kind of do like it. It, it gets weird and confusing because, like, it... I, I don't know. I feel like if you have the story with the beginning, take out, like, the weird middle end bit. Yeah. And then go with just the ending with Bloody Face. It could have been really, really good. Yeah, but then they added in a bunch of stuff. I was like, oh, what? So, a brief synopsis of Asylum is that Lana Winters, a journalist... Lana. Lana, sorry. Lana. Lana, banana, right. Lana Winters, a journalist in 1960... I forget the year, but it's in the 1960s, um, who's also a lesbian, goes undercover into the Asylum... Briarcliff. Briarcliff, things. I don't remember names of things. Um, there, she meets a doctor who turns out to be a serial killer. There's a possessed nun. And there's aliens. And also a former Nazi doctor who works there and runs experiments on the people in the asylum. And Anne Frank makes... Well, Anne Frank. Frank. Quotation marks. Question mark. Makes an appearance. Yeah. I don't really... I still don't understand that whole thing. I think, I don't know. I don't know what's up with that either. So it's basically just lesbians, murder, aliens, possession. Let's go. That's basically the the summary of American Horror Story season two. And the name game. And the name game. There's this great scene where they just start singing and dancing to the name game. And it felt, it feels like a fever dream, but... Lana, Lana, Bobana, Banana, Banana, Bobana, 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 Lana. Lana. So, firstly, let's go into, like, the basis of truth of American Horror Story, like, in terms of, did the events that take place seem plausible at all? So, we already know that lobotomies and hydrotherapy were, like, huge things back then, and they were not the types to hold back on doing anything like that and shock treatment is still a thing nowadays but it's only if someone offers to do it so you can offer to do shock treatment often to forget trauma that happened um i know a lot of people are like why did jude go insane after being in the asylum and it's called um so she ended up becoming a lot mentally ill than she originally was because of the amount of sedative medications that often cause hallucinations, the soft treatment, the um, isolation that they put on people. And there was also... I can see you dancing over there to it. Uh, Shelly, 
was also um, a nymphomaniac, which was classified as a mental disorder back then. Mm-hmm. So she was shoved and was put into the asylum. And later on, it was linked to bipolar disorder, but a sexual appetite of any kind was frowned upon, and even having sexual dreams or masturbating could be considered evidence for nymphomania. See, okay, I remember the first time watching it, I wasn't like, I don't know, I was preoccupied doing something else while watching the first episode of Asylum, and I thought it said necrophiliac, and I was like, (laughs) I wanted to go cry, and then I was like, Oh, like I had to rewatch it and realize that that was not what she was. No, she she just was in control of her own sexuality, and that scared people enough to put her in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course there's Lena. Lena. I Lena. 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 No, she pronounces it Oyeta Winters. I know, but saying it wrong just amuses me because you get so mad about it. But uh. Alana was obviously put into the asylum undercover, but then it was figured out that she was gay. And back in the day, being gay was considered unacceptable and illegal in many parts of the country. And it was also a mental illness. So in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it was classified as one until 1974. And conversion therapy that she went through was very common and still happens today. Um, So doctors would try to convert inappropriate homosexual feelings into appropriate heterosexual feelings. And they would also try to teach young women how to be feminine and how to be woman. So it wouldn't, it wasn't uncommon for people like her to be in an asylum like that. And men and women would be reported by their families and then picked up in the middle of the night to be taken to an institution. The whole thing with Lana makes me really mad. Because the thing is, is they didn't even really have proof that she was a lesbian until like they invaded her personal life because she was like, I'm gonna write a story about how you treat people wrong in your asylum. And they're like, oh no, no, you can't do that. No, 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 Lana. <laughs> and then they like went in and invaded her personal like space and they were like, Oh, you like the women, Lena? Oh, haha, we can now throw you in here by blackmailing your girlfriend. They weren't married. They were girlfriend. <laughs> in the sixties. Yeah, just like it was hard for Kit and Alma to get married. I'm gonna talk about them later. Sorry. Chill. To them. Yeah. Okay. So Kit and Alma were played by Evan Peters and Brittany Oldford. Which, oh my gosh, they were so cute together. They were, and they were based on a real couple um, named Barney and Betty Hill. And Barney was actually um, black, and Betty was white. So they were an interracial couple during turbulent times for civil rights. And additionally, the couple remained adamant that they had been abducted by aliens. That sounds familiar. Hence why Kit and Alma were abducted by aliens in their story. And I might actually cover Benny and Barney's Hill's full story later because there's a lot that goes down with them. That's a lot to unpack. (laughs) It's a whole bag and a half. 
Um, so, as for Briarcliff itself, uh, there are a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of institutions that I could have taken inspiration from, considering just generally how patients were treated back then. And one of the top contenders is Willowbrook State School, which was intended to house people with disabilities. And Sarah Paulson's character goes undercover to Briarcliff to expose immoral practices, but there was actually a woman who did that, and her name was Donna J. Stone, who went undercover to expose Willowbrook's criminal practices. Um, although uh, Jared Dotto Rivera ultimately shut um, Willowbrook down with an expose Riverdale, <laughs> Riverdale. Uh, was the one who shut it down with an expose, and I think you can find videos of the expose down there somewhere on YouTube. Down there. <laughs> down there. Um, down under. Down under. Once the visitors left the school, um, it consisted of a lot of gruesome conditions and he- heinous physical and sexual abuse of the patients there. There was also Bloody Face, which I feel like I should mention Cropsy at least honorably. And Cropsy is an urban legend. Um, there's a documentary on it on Netflix, and I think it's called Urban Legends, or something like that. Um, and Cropsy wasn't a patient at Willowbrook. They believe Cropsy's based on this guy named Andre Rand, who worked as a custodian, who worked as a custodian at Willowbrook, and he would later be arrested for kidnapping and the murder of one child. Um, and it was widely speculated that he was serial killer uh, in the 2009 documentary Cropsy. Uh, Willowbrook also carried out inhumane experiments on its patients. Uh, these experiments came courtesy of Saul Krugman, who infected hundreds of healthy children with hepatitis for research. Um, one vaccinologist said, The Willowbrook studies were the most unethical medical experiments ever performed in children in the United States. And when they cleared out Willowbrook, uh, police detectives found human remains kept in jars and it was never determined where they came from. And like I said, Willowbrook wasn't unfortunately one of the only things in the situation during that time period to be like that. Trying to eat macaroni, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry. There's also the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which is what I'm going to be mainly focusing from here on out. So it opened its doors in 1863 and was originally called the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. It was spilt. It was spilt. It was built. <laughs> I just spilled it all over. <laughs> it was built to state of the art. Um, specifications able to house 250 patients each with their own room with a separate wing for black people completed a few years later ooh goody yay so skilled stone masons had been brought in from Germany and Ireland to contribute to the um, architecture that featured wide open windows giving patients access to natural light and fresh air so it sounds nice so far the grounds were it's like a school. Schools are built like prisons. They really are. Like that's actually not a myth. No, that's like a true thing. They're built like prisons. It's awful. <clears throat> the grounds were magnificent and sustainable, including a working farm, 
dairy, waterworks, gas well, and a cemetery. It was architect Richard Snowden Andrews um, who really was the main pusher and the main head of construction, and he had intended it to be a self-sufficient, state-of-art f- uh, facility designed to make patients feel at home, well cared for, and restored. <laughs> In 1881, disaster struck. There was an increase in mental health diagnosis and the stigma surrounding the disease. So the Trans-Allegheny uh, Lunatic Asylum found its tranquil facilities overrun, housing almost f- 500 more patients than they ever imagined. You were about to say 50. Yeah. That 500's a little different. No, it's just an extra zero. <laughs> Unable to keep, keep up with the unforeseen number of patients that continued to grow every day, the conditions began to decline rapidly. Patients began to be crammed together, sometimes four or five of them in a room intended for one. The farm and dairy on the car, um, compound, originally intended to meet the needs of 300, were unable to meet um, the demand that came with overcrowding. So patients began to starve which um, contributed to their declining health. And by 1938, it was six times over its capacity. The patients were running wild and were unable to be controlled by orderlies inside. A report issued by a group of medical organizations described the population as being comprised of epilepsy. I choked on my spit again. Epilepsy. Epileptics. There you go. Epileptics, alcoholics, drug addicts, and non-educable, that's a weird-ass phrase, non-educable mental defectives. Um, at its peak in the 1950s, the hospital was holding more than 2,600 patients. That's too many. More than 10 times its original intent. To expose the terrible conditions within, the Charleston Gazette attempted to send a crew to investigate the inner workings of the asylum and what they found shocked them. So I'm not going to... It's obviously a haunted asylum, and I'm not going to go into the hauntings right now, but I'll just tell you about what they found. Right now. Maybe I'll mention it later. So patients were found sleeping on the floor and in freezing rooms due to lack of furniture and heat. The overcrowding had resulted in overworked staff and a decreased emphasis on sanitation. The once bright clear windows were covered with grime, darkening and further chilling the rooms. The wallpaper was peeling from decay and where it had disintegrated on its own, the patients had torn it off in rages of panic. Worse even were the patients themselves. The patients whom the orderlies deemed unable to be controlled had been locked in cages in open spaces in an attempt to make more bedrooms available for less worrisome patients. By the time the asylum would close, the graveyard had been expanded to an eerie 666 acres to make room for ra- the rapidly dying patients. So the expose published by the Gazette spurred a movement to close down the hospital, but it wasn't until 1994 after more than 100 years of squalor, that the trans-Allegheny Lunatic Sam closed its doors forever. So... Oh God. <laughs> yeah. So now the building sits um, destined for destruction and it's abandoned, as if everyone in there had just disappeared. Because there are still rooms filled with like medical equipment and... The furniture and wheelchair wheelchairs are still in the hallways and things like that. Like that. And uh, since 2007, people have been using like the the museum 
as like um, ghost tours or they might just go there for like a historic tour. But that's the story of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Museum, which was one of probably one of the things that heavily inspired Asylum and Briarcliff. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. It's only going to get darker from here. I mean, I'll try to lighten it up in the middle. I'm like, no, at the end, I'll lighten it up. So we're going to talk about season three, Coven. Now, Coven, in a nutshell, you have all of these witches and they are at war with the voodoo um, witches because there's their different practices. And eventually they realize, oh, we kind of want the same thing to happen. And so they try to join forces and stuff goes down. Supremes need to be chosen. People get stuck in realities where they have to dissect frogs every day of their so life. That was so unfair to her. That makes me so sad still. She didn't deserve that. Think about that through all of season five, six. Seven, Misty's just been there dissecting frogs. I feel so... Enforcing, like, bringing them back to life and then being forced to kill it. I feel so bad. Misty was my favorite one. I really do love Misty. And I want to... Okay, this isn't really a, like, oh, real-life story thing, but I thought it was a fun little nod. So Stevie Nicks makes an appearance. Queen. She has had rumors about her, like, for forever now that people are like, Stevie Nicks is a white witch. And so that was a little nod to that, and they got Stevie. And so that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but people actually did think for a really long time that Stevie Nicks was a witch. People, people? Some people do yeah. still think that. So, I don't know, Stevie. You a witch? You a witch, Stevie? So we've already talked about... Um, Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen. So why don't we go into the other Marie, Madame Marie Delphine LaLaurie. Oh. So Kathy Bates played her. I love Kathy. Um, but LaLaurie was a real person. And if you think, oh, maybe the show made her nicer. No. It, like it, it made her nicer than she actually was. So, if you thought the show, the Lori was bad, oh, 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 just wait. It's 1834, and at the mansion at 1140 Royal Street in the French Quarter of New Orleans, a fire broke out. The neighbors rushed out to help, offering to pour water on the flames and to help the family evacuate. However, when they arrived, they noticed that the woman of the house seemed to be alone. A mansion without slaves seemed shocking, and a group of locals took it upon themselves to search the house. What they found would forever change the public's perception of Madame Marie Delphine Lalaurie, once known as a respectable member of society and now known as a savage mistress of New Orleans. So the rumors have muddied the facts throughout the years. But there are a few details that have stood to test, stood the test of time. First, the group that the group of locals found the slaves in the attic. Second, that they had clearly been tortured. 
Um, reports from eyewitnesses claim that there were at least seven slaves beaten, bruised, and bloodied within an inch of their lives, their eyes gouged out, skin filleted, and mouths filled with excrement and then sewn shut. One particularly disturbing report claimed that there was a woman whose bones had been broken and reset so that she resembled a crab, mm. and, another, and that another woman was wrapped in human intestines. Uh -uh. The witnesses also claimed that there were people with holes in their skulls and wooden spoons near them that would be used to stir their brains. There were rumors that there were dead bodies in the attic as well, their corpses mutilated beyond recognition, their organs not intact or inside their bodies. So, oh, you thought sewing a boar head onto a dude was bad? Lori is awful. Okay, so some say that there were only a handful of bodies, but others claim that there were over a hundred victims. Either way, it made Madame LaLaurie's reputation as one of the most brutal women in history. So, she, she had five children, um, and she was married, she married two different men, well, three, three, she had three husbands. Um, and so, Lori um, kept slaves, obviously, as most people in the time did, and most of the city was shocked at how polite she was to them, showing them kindness in public and even minuting, minuting what two of them in nineteen in eighteen nineteen and eighteen thirty two, manumuting, manumuting, what? Manumitting? Manumitting, I guess. I don't know what that means. Probably, I don't know. Released. She released them. Two of them. Okay. I'll just cut out the whole manumitting bit. Yeah. However, <laughs> soon rumors began to spread that the politeness exhibited in public may have been an act. Those rumors were very true. Though New Orleans had laws, unlike most southern states, that protected slaves from unusually cruel punishments, the conditions at the LaLaurie Mansion were far from adequate. There were rumors that she kept her 70-year-old cook chained to the stove, starving. There were others that she was keeping secret slaves for her doctor husband to practice um, Haitian voodoo medicine on. There were also other reports that her cruel- Haitian? Haitian, thank you. I'm so tired. Don't even. Haitian voodoo medicine on. There were other reports that her cruelly extend- that cruelly- that curtly extended to her daughters who she would punish and whip if they tried to help the slaves in any way. Two reports are on record as being true. One, that a man was so scared of punishment that he threw himself out of the third-story window, choosing to die rather than to be subjected to Madame LaLaurie's torture. Um, yeah. The third-story window was then cemented shut and is still visible today. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So it's on. So 
Second window from the left right there. Oh. That window. It is cemented. From. Yeah, it's the only one that's cemented. Um, the other report concerned a 12-year-old slave girl named Leah. As soon as... So, as Leah was brushing Madame LaLaurie's hair, she pulled a little too hard, causing LaLaurie to fly into a rage and whip the girl. Like the young man before her, the young girl climbed out onto the roof, the roof leaping to her death. Witnesses saw LaLaurie bearing the girl's corpse, and police were forced to find her $300 and make her sell nine of her slaves. Of course, they all looked the other way when she purchased them all back. After Leah's death, the locals began to doubt that LaLaurie doubt Lallory even more than they already were. So when the fire broke out, no one was surprised that her slaves were the last to be found, though there was nothing that could prepare them for what they saw. After the slaves were released from the burning building, a mob of almost 4,000 angry townspeople ransacked the home, smashing windows and tearing down doors until almost nothing remained but the outside walls. Though the house still stands on the corner of Royal Street, the whereabouts of Madame Lallory are still unknown. After the dust settled, the woman and her driver were missing, assumed to have fled to Paris. However, there was no word of her ever making it to Paris. Her daughter claimed to have received letters from her, though no one had ever seen them. So, in the late 1930s, old cracked copper plate was found in New Orleans, St. Louis Cemetery, bearing the name Lalaurie Madame Duffine McCarty, Lalaurie's maiden name. Jesus. The inspection of the plaque in French claims that Madame Laurie died in Paris on December 7th in 1842. However, the mystery still remains alive, as the other records located in Paris claim that she died in 1849. So, despite the plaque and the records, it's widely believed that while Laurie made it to Paris, she came back to New Orleans under a new name and continued her reign of terror. To this day, the body of Madame Marie, Marie Delphine Laurie has never been that's great. I really hope it never is found. I hope she's stuck in purgatory. Don't we all? I hope she is burning in the seventh gate of hell. Yeah, it's really... Right before you have to crawl through Satan's balls. <laughs> That's how you get out of hell. But it's just... Ugh. Like, they made her a lot nicer in Coven. Yeah. It wasn't that controversial, too. Yeah, it, it was. And there is no evidence that... Um, uh, um, that Marie Laveau was involved in any way with LaLaurie. So, nothing... There's nothing there to prove that connection. Although they were in New Orleans at the same time. So, you never know. Maybe she was a person who... One of those 4,000. But it's one of those things. It's just shocking. No one, like, even at a time when you could have slaves, the fact that so many people were like, um, no, don't do that. That's wrong. Says something about you. At least, at least someone cared. Vaguely. Um, so now we're gonna lighten it up a bit, um, with the murder. Never thought I'd say those words. Yeah, I mean, lateral. We're gonna talk about. So gross. We're gonna talk about a serial killer in New Orleans. Axeman? 
X-Men. So from May 1918 to October 1919, um, press reports during the high public panic about the killings mentioned similar murders as early as 1911, but recent researchers have called these reports into question. The perpetrator was never identified and the murders remained unsolved. So, the X-Men of New Orleans, he popped in for a little bit of time, um, dated Fiona. No, no, not Fiona. Um, I, was that her name? Yeah, her name was Fiona. Okay. That, and then he was in her. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I always thought it was really weird that they threw him in there. And that was one of the things that I think, I guess, lowers it on my personal ranking of American Horror Story. I actually liked that he threw them in, like, that they threw him in there. Because let's be real, the Axeman was a hella weak serial killer. Yeah, I know. But it was just really creepy when he was like, I've watched you since you were a little girl. Yeah, that was gross. And I was like, ew, dude, seriously? Yeah. Gee, like, anyway, so as um, the name of the killer implies, the victims were usually attacked with an axe, which often belonged to the victims themselves. Mm. <laughs> which, oof, I would hate for that to happen, like have your own knife and then be stabbed by your own knife. Um, in most cases, a panel on the back door of the home was removed by a chisel, which were both left on the floor near the door followed by an attack on one or more of the residents with either an axe or a straight razor. The crimes were not motivated by robbery, and the perpetrator never removed items from his victims' homes. So he was just like, eh, I just want to kill people. It wasn't even a, I'm going to steal your stuff. He took nothing. That's, mm. That's such an invasion. Yeah. The majority of the X-Men's victims were Italian immigrants or Italian-Americans, leading many to believe that the crimes were ethic ethnically motivated. Many media outlets sensationalized the aspect of the crimes, even suggesting mafia involvement despite lack of evidence. Some crime analysis have suggested that the killings were related to sex and that the murder the murderer was perhaps a sadist, specifically seeking female victims. Ugh. Criminologists Colin, Colin and Damien Wilson hypothesized that the Axeman killed male victims only when they were obstruct, only when they obstructed his attempts to murder women, supported by cases in which the women of the household was murdered, but not the man. A less plausible theory is that the killer committed the murders in an attempt to promote jazz music, suggested <laughs> by a letter attributed to the killer in which he stated he would spare the lives of those who would play jazz in his home. He needed to promote jazz music in New Orleans. Yep. I'm going to read the letter. This letter is actually read on American Horror Story word for word. They have the correct letter. But I want to read it anyway because it's a, it's a doozy. Um, oh, feel free to stop me at any point in time. Um, because this is a letter, man. Oh. So this is the letter. Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal Wait. New Orleans. <laughs> Got the, okay. Instantly, it reminds me. Hell. <laughs> it reminds me of an edgy emo user in early 2000 <laughs> on MySpace. 
esteemed mortal of New Orleans. All right, ready? My favorite artist is Fall Out Boy. <laughs> no, he likes jazz, you dumbo. Oh, um, sorry. They have never caught me, and they never will. I mean, they have never wrong. seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. <laughs> okay. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axemen. <laughs> when I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below, sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not amuse me. I mean, has has to not only amuse me but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But. Tell them to beware. Let them try not to discover what I am, for it were better if they it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axemen. I don't think there is a need for such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians Orleanians is such a weird word to look at. And to hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Think of me as the most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay you a visit. A visit to your city every night. At Isn't will, that what he was doing anyway? At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst. For I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time... On next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. Did he not know the date? Did he not know the date? He was like, oh, what's next Tuesday? Like, he asked his roommate. Like, oh. He was like, what's next Tuesday? And his I don't know. Like, oh. Okay. It's like, all right then. On next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I'm very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared whom, in whose home jazz, a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everybody has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is some of your people who do not jazz it, who do not jazz it out on that special... <laughs> Hey, man, I really jazzed out yesterday. If you didn't jazz it out, um, on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, we'll get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, um, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou will publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that has ever existed, either in fact or realm or fantasy. The Axeman. God, he 
was a fucking douchebag. If you don't jazz it out. God, what a dude. Yeah. Um, so he killed 12 people. So there's that. Um, and I'm going to stop it there because there's just, there's so much. There's so much. And we have like an hour of recording. <laughs> so this has been as long as, long as, as it's spooky. spooky. Stay spooky, my dudes. Stay spooky. Stay tuned for next episode. And if you have any scary stories, please feel free to share them with us. Please. Please. You can DM us. You can t- email us. Tweet us. Yeah, you can tweet us. You can literally. All of, all of our social media plugs come in after this. You'll hear the theme song again, and then you'll hear me plugging our social media <laughs> for like a few seconds. So keep it spooky, my dudes. Have a safe, happy Halloween. Yeet. Hey, Alex here. Thank you for listening to As Awesome Spooky with Ari and myself. We are under Instagram as alais.podcast, and we are also on Twitter as A-L-A-I-S Podcast. If you or anyone else you know has had a spooky experience, email us the story at aswarsonspooky at gmail.com. And if you're able to, please rate, subscribe, leave a review, any traction that we can get is good enough for us. Thanks.